If both of us thought the same, one of us would be unnecessary. This audio is part two of skill number three, empathy. It comes from the book Everyone Can Win, about handling conflicts constructively. Now we're delving into difference and what it takes to respect personality styles and values that are not a bit like our own. Some people are so different, and you can't see why they behave the way they do, why something so trivial to you seems so important to them. You sometimes wonder if they've come from another planet. When two people are very different, it's easy for discomforts and incidents to escalate and grow deeper into misunderstandings, tension, or even crisis. At that point, anything they do or say seems alien or wrong. Worse still, they're probably thinking exactly the same thing about you. We're talking here of major differences in personality styles and values. And yet, difference itself is not the problem. The problem is our judgment about that difference. Of course, we're going to get on more easily with people who are more like us, but that's not necessarily the best for a productive relationship. There's a good reason why opposites attract. Balance. It's actually smart to team up with someone who has a very different style of operating. The big picture person does well to work with someone who rather enjoys number crunching detail. Well, they might not absolutely love it, but they are good at it. And if you're rather academic and logical... There'll be times when it's vital to listen to someone who'll be more in touch with the emotional climate of the situation. Combining different personalities can be just what makes a marriage successful or a work team function really well. Remember, if both of us thought the same, one of us would be unnecessary. That magical quality starts with respect. We can't judge the other person as somehow lesser or wrong. They're just looking out at the world through different spectacles, and their perspective is just as valid as ours. It's built on their experiences and their values and needs. And moreover, they need to know that we respect them. And we'll only persuade them of that if we really do. Of course, respect is not automatic. We may need to rethink to see how it looks from where they stand. Rapport grows of its own accord when you really know where the other person is coming from. Can we make space for difference? Diversity is a rich resource. Can we become curious about it? Well, let's explore further. There are some frameworks that explain differences rather well. And the first one we'll look at is DISC. That's D-I-S-C. I find the DISC model really helps teams work better together. And team might be a family, a work group, or perhaps a committee. The DISC model talks about four very different styles of behaviour. It starts with the distinction between extroversion and introversion. Carl Jung, the psychiatrist and the theoretician who was working early last century, pointed this out clearly when he said, if one is an extrovert and the other an introvert, 
Their different and contradictory standpoints may clash right away, particularly when they're unaware of their own type of personality or when they're convinced that their own is the only right type. Extroverts are outgoing. They tend to say what they're currently thinking or feeling quite easily. And introverts are more reserved. They're more internal and more restrained when they talk. Extroverts think out loud as they talk. So don't be too surprised if they change their minds afterwards. And introverts don't operate like that. They're internal thinkers. They think things through before they open their mouths. They may need to be invited to speak out, and then they'll need time to finish their sentences. Extroverts, however, hold the floor, and they're often quite happy jumping in and interrupting. Plenty of opportunity for friction and judgment here. When extroverts and introverts are together, they'll both need to make space for difference. However, a note of warning. Don't label people too glibly. It's a sliding scale, not introvert or extrovert. Most people probably do prefer one end of the scale or the other, but they'll usually sit somewhere inside those two extremes. For most people, if you're being accurate, you can only say that they're more outgoing or perhaps a bit more reserved. The second distinction that the DISC model makes is between someone who's more people-oriented and someone who's more task-oriented. Let's call them a people person or a task person for a quick explanation. But don't box people into either one of these categories either. In truth, very few people will think task totally at the expense of people, or people totally at the expense of task. So, like any other model, it has its limits. However, it is useful when we're trying to point out tendencies and which ones show up at difficult times, like when there's conflict in the air. Also, bear in mind that people change their style depending on the circumstances. Different jobs are going to foster different behaviours, and we might be quite different at home than we are socially, at sports or in the workplace. So, with those provisos about our labels, note that a people person regards relationship as their top priority, while a task person will generally focus on the job at hand before they pay attention to the relationship. Task people are likely to start a conversation with what needs to be done. And then, if they're not too busy, they might check in with you about how your children are going or if you're fully recovered from your cold. A people person might presume the task person doesn't care about them and perhaps makes judgments about how self-centred they are. They never ask about me might be their complaint. And while this mind chat is going on, the task person is probably making judgments too. They're finding all those social preliminaries of the people person are just insincere and filling in time. So we've discussed the two scales used by the DIS model, the first being introverted to extroverted, and the second task-oriented to people-oriented. Might help to scribble a diagram while you're listening or look up the chart in the study notes on the Conflict Resolution Network website. 
draw them as two lines crossing each other, like a big plus sign, and then you'll have four possible combinations of characteristics, and each is a very different style of operating. So the first combination is extroversion in a task person, and that gives you a very direct style, whereas extroversion mixed with a people person results in an outgoing influencing style. Stabilising is the name in the DIS model for a people person who's introverted. And lastly, conscientious is the name given to the combination of introversion with a task-oriented person. Have you spotted where the model gets its name from? It's the first letters of these four styles. So D for direct, I for influencing, S for stabilising and C for conscientious. These differences can produce lots of misunderstandings and conflict, especially if you don't realise what you're up against. So let's see if we can understand each style a little better. It will really help you recall this later if you bring to mind someone you know who fits this style. Ideally, you'll end up with four different people who can serve as your personal models for direct, influencing, stabilising and conscientious. And also listen to what each style offers in useful insights or perspectives, and particularly if their style's very different to your own. Take a moment to honour the type of contributions that that sort of person can make. We shouldn't dismiss those contributions lightly, just because it's not how we see things. We need them. We'll also consider how each style likes to be treated, so that they feel their contributions are appreciated, and we don't get them offside. Okay, so here we go. Direct people value action and results, and they use a forthright, no-nonsense style of conversation, and they'll often be very brief. They've got other things to get on with. So, respect their time and get to the point without getting emotional, too personal, or telling long-winded stories. Who do you know like that? Forthright and no-nonsense. Influencers value the relationship and they prefer to let the details take care of themselves. They really need people to talk to. To show them you respect them, you'll ask their opinion and you'll check whether they can do what it is that you want. You certainly won't order them to do it. And if they really must take lots of detail on board, they'll need a friendly helping hand, like some visual aids. Details definitely not their strong suit. Know anyone who's an influencer? They tend to talk a lot. Stabilizers value peace and harmony. Conflict can really rattle them. They'd much prefer an open, calm approach. They're sensing the situation deeply, and not only for themselves, but for others around them too. They have a quieter style, and they probably won't jump into a group conversation. And they're easily stifled if they try they'll want to see a considered review of the impact on everyone involved, so respect that. If you can encourage them to come out with their point of view, really turn your focus on them and their opinions for a while. It'll be worth it. Have you got a stabiliser in your life? Generally calm and kindly. Conscientious people value order, logic, research and quality. Remember, they're reserved and there's a lot going on under the surface. 
give them a bit of extra time to communicate effectively. They'll do their homework on the topic, and their advice when they share it will be very practical. In the midst of all that detail they're engrossed with, they'll bring forth a gem, maybe just the one you need badly and have completely overlooked. They'll know you respect them if you're on time, prepared, move forward sequentially and follow the rules, like they do. Most importantly, make sure you acknowledge their painstaking work. While they're at work, they focus on their work. But take a moment to inquire about their family too. They'll also be giving that their focused attention. The details person in your life will probably be the one leaning to the conscientious style. Have you got one of those? These four styles are very different. How will you work with that? The key is to be flexible. When you've got to talk about difficult issues with someone whose style is very different to your own, adapt your approach. Include their perspectives. In return, they're likely to respect what you're saying also. So, the big question is, where would you place yourself? Are you more direct, influencing, stabilising or conscientious? And now think about a person in your life with whom you're having the most difficulty. Are they the opposite to you on the introversion-extroversion scale? Are they also opposite to you on the people versus task scale? If their style is radically different to your own, this may well be the source of many of the difficulties that you're having with each other. Each style is rooted in different underlying needs and concerns, and it's worth respecting those when you're dealing with them. If their style is direct, they're happiest with a challenge, a project in their life, and they need to feel like they're in charge. Hold them back and they'll lash out. Influencers need opportunities to express their point of view in person. They're at their best, putting forward new ideas, liaising with other people, and then feeding off the feedback. Block those needs and you've got them offside, frustrated, and possibly quite depressed. Stabilisers need to feel appreciated for what they bring to the situation. They're making sure that everyone is pleased or at least satisfied. Their eyes on the whole social context. If someone else is unhappy, they're also in trouble. Disharmony is their biggest concern. They desperately need you to resolve any conflict as quickly as you can. The conscientious person needs a detailed picture. Help them get that. Of course, we all hate criticism, but the conscientious person who's trying so hard to get every detail right may well react very badly if you criticise them, and much more extremely than you meant or expected. Their self-esteem may well rest on how they've lined up all the facts. Support that. Thinking again of that difficult person in your life, are they more outgoing or reserved? Are they focused on people or focused on task? And have you done enough to meet their needs? There are other useful models that can help us understand ourselves and others, how we perceive the world and we make decisions, and the Myers-Briggs type indicator is one of them. The take-home message from any model is make space for different styles.
moving on, let's look at some ways to avoid clashing values. If we don't attend to these, they can quickly drain the empathy out of any relationship. Here's a super simple example. Tidiness. We each value it a bit differently. And there's liable to be a values clash if one person has a high regard for tidiness, but is very low on the other person's priority list. Another example might be how we value chatting about the day's events. We might come to resent a partner for whom quiet time is uppermost for them when they return home. It's a pretty dangerous strategy to try to shift any person's underlying values. It rarely works out. People's values can go right to their core, and they'll rarely alter them. And anyway, why should you alter yours? We all need our values respected. And religious or spiritual values are a clear case in point. We hold our values close to our heart. They dictate how we run our lives, and tempers rise if they're not supported. So, how can we sidestep these values clashes? Here's a tip. Can we find a marker, a a signal, a, a flag, that demonstrates respect for the value? What that marker is, is going to depend on the situation, and the particular value, of course. If you value a chat about the day's events with your partner at the end of the day, exactly when and for how long will generally be enough for you. Markers might be phone calls or regular reports or a bunch of flowers, a thank you, a meeting or a production target, clothes not being left on the floor, or time respected for prayers or meditation. How much of each marker needs to happen to show respect for that value? Find that value marker and negotiate how much is enough. Here are some examples. If I telephone my elderly parent twice a week, will they think that's sufficiently dutiful? If the value is that birthdays should be properly acknowledged, what adequately acknowledges that? A text, a card, a bunch of flowers? And do I need a more considered present from someone close to me? How many staff meetings per month will signal that teamwork is valued by the organisation? What would flag that your tidiness standards are being respected? Everyone puts their own dirty clothes in the laundry basket? By when? Every day? Or do you just need your messy teenager to pick up all their stuff on cleaning day without having to be nagged? You'll need to negotiate. How much of what? Where? How often? These are values chats that can restore empathy when values clash. However, there will be times when our own values are in head-on collision with the other person's. We have directly opposing priorities. Let's look at some common ones that often show up and particularly in the workplace. They're opposing values that seem to cause people repeated problems with each other. Others may be demonstrating a value that's pretty low on our own priority list. The four opposing values we'll consider here are equality versus status, needing agreement versus loving competition, focusing on feelings first versus all of our attention on the outer world of action and objects. And the last of these is about our comfort zone. Do we rest in interdependence or much prefer autonomy and independence? 
All these are directly conflicting values. Rate high on the value of equality and see everyone as equal, and you won't think much of those who build self-esteem on their superior status. If you thrive on competition, just agreeing to restore harmony can seem pretty wishy-washy to you. If your first focus goes to inner feelings, you can feel terribly dismissed by someone who just attends to what to do next or what they want to buy. Those people's eyes are on the outer world and accomplishment. If your prime value is to be autonomous and independent, you may well look askance at the team players, and being required to be dependent on others will often grate. Yes, we all have both ends of these polarities, but people who rate very high on one value tend to be low on the value at the opposite end. Our priorities are influenced by our personalities, our life experiences, our cultures, and how we view this particular situation. Our values will often, though certainly not always, line up with gender. We might regard the values of equality, agreement, feelings focus and interdependence as more of a traditionally feminine style, while status, competition, action and objects focus and autonomy has been seen as more masculine. But watch out. Many a man holds these so-called feminine values sacred, and many a woman has smashed through the glass ceiling with a very masculine set of values. Don't box all men or all women into these categories. Not all men come from Mars and not all women come from Venus. The Chinese system of yin and yang may well say it better. I've explored these values in depth in my book, The Gentle Revolution, and on our website there's a summary in the extra study material for this episode. So, spot the values clash. Unfortunately, during conflict, we tend to take a stance for the value in question, and the more righteously we defend it, the more we attract conflict with other people who hold the opposite value. Let's look at that. Firstly, equality versus status. Equalizers work hard to avoid arousing others' jealousy. They won't choose an expensive car, even if they can afford it. They don't want to flaunt their status. They'll use fairness to evaluate the alternatives, and they'll come out fighting to defend their own rights or the rights of friends or colleagues or the disadvantaged. Status watchers are drawn towards anything that will improve their status, in particular power and leverage. They're striving to rise to the top and doing whatever it takes to get there. Self-improvement, building a clear chain of command, enforcing obedience to protocol and instructions. The best of them use their power wisely. However, some build status by taking personal credit for other people's achievements, and that's a particularly annoying misuse of power. Let's turn to agreement versus competition. Agreeers like to keep the peace, so they emphasise similarity and common ground. They might rush into an unsatisfactory arrangement just because they hate leaving the disagreement hanging in the air. Competers, on the other hand, have a high regard for competition because it drives people forward to achieve their best, and they'll accept a certain level of aggression as part of the rough and tumble of life. 
They enjoy coming out on top after a disagreement. Are they testing the real worth of an idea, or do they just love the sport of debate? Let's turn now to the axis of feeling versus actions and objects. For feeling focuses, their first source of information is internal, on feelings, their own and other people's. They're relatively willing to disclose vulnerable feelings, and they'll often use emotions, intuition, and their gut feelings as their guide to action. They'll thrive on a deep and meaningful uh, conversation about all the feelings involved. Action focuses hold their attention on the external world, on actions and objects, what they know through their five senses, the hard facts. They'll generally steer conversations away from feeling. They'll build rapport through the exchange of concrete information, shared activities, results and conversations about tangible things like the stock market or vintage cars or recipes. For some action focuses, the internal world of feeling is difficult, private and possibly uncharted territory. Then there's the interdependence versus autonomy axis. The interdependent person centres themselves on their work team or their family, and that's a great place to start from, but it does have its faults. They can judge others harshly if they're not a team player. They can depend too much on others, and they might need lots of encouragement to manage alone if that's what's needed. The independent person, however, wants to be autonomous to prove themselves, to solve problems on their own. And they can judge others who aren't like that as weak, dependent or even meddling. They're working towards a clear sense of self. They might work well with others, but they like sole responsibility in their personal area, be it cooking a meal or being in charge of their own work project. They build self-esteem on, I can do this myself. Well, we particularly applaud that in a developing child. But in adults, it can get out of hand and conflicts will erupt when it does. Watch out for signs of a values clash. In the following examples, someone's underlying value has been ignored. Listen and guess which one it might be. That's not fair. What's the underlying value here? Yes, equality. Show some respect. You'd better acknowledge their status pretty soon. Why do you always have to make such a fuss? The challenge has been to their underlying value of agreement. This is a dog-eat-dog world, and if you can't stand the heat, get out. This person's thriving on competition. Oh, how about... You don't give a damn how I feel. You're not listening. Easy. They're focused on feelings. Stop complaining and just get on with it. They're over this feelings business. Their focus is on action. Or how about we're all in this together? That's the theme song of the interdependence person. Let me do this myself. Don't tell me what to do. They're crying out for autonomy, and we all want some of that. So we need to sort out a values clash. How do we do that? Can we spot a conflict of values and name it, 
at least to ourselves. It might tone down our negative judgments. For example, once we become aware that the other person is more oriented towards action, whereas we're more concerned with feelings, there's a bit less sting in our tail. When we acknowledge their value and the way that our style has clashed with that, we've got insight into the underlying issue and we're well on the way to a reasonable compromise. Just can't understand them? When might you operate out of that difficult value, even if generally you wouldn't be motivated by it? You might hate competition, for example. But do you actually enjoy a tough game of tennis, particularly if you've finally won? Find that alien value somewhere in yourself and you'll understand that other person better. If we recognise that we are, in fact, at the extreme end of one of these spectrums, can we pull it back a bit and try to accommodate the other person's values? Remember, don't try to change anyone else's values, but perhaps you and the other person can just shift priorities a bit. Can your key value find some place in their decision-making? Can you include their key value in yours? You're looking for values markers. How much of what will satisfy that value here? There's a changing emphasis on these values in the workplace. Best practices in management are shifting towards equality, agreement, feelings and interdependence. And they're shifting away from traditional authoritarian control. Conflicting opinions on management styles will often cause conflict. If management set up a work climate to be highly competitive, someone is sure to feel that they've got it all wrong. And if your boss keeps tight reins on every last detail, you may well resist. It might get compliance, but it usually produces pretty unsatisfied workers. People want to offer their suggestions and have them respected. There's a telltale sign if management style is out of date. Watch for staff turnover. What's the good intention? We often see other people's motivations only from our own perspective, and from theirs it's actually looking quite different. Someone abruptly asks you to leave the room straight after a meeting. If you think they're rude and bossy, you'll probably feel very alienated. If you know that they're trying to clear the room quickly for the next meeting, you'll probably brush off the incident with an OK, OK, I'm going and offer a quick smile. When your feathers are ruffled, look for the other person's good intention. There almost always is one, and it helps to know it, or even guess at what it could be. You'll be less prickly if you go looking for it. Often they're coming from a value you can respect. Perhaps it's their right to privacy or their duty to protect. Even when you disagree with the underlying value or motivation, a meaningful discussion might help you understand it better. You might open up with, tell me why that's so important to you. Even if you can't identify a good intention, presume it exists, it gives empathy a chance. Catherine and John's story demonstrates what I'm on about here. Catherine said that she'd been dating John. Apparently they'd gone out several times with each other and she felt their relationship was starting to develop and yet something was getting in the way. 
John had children from a previous marriage, and each time they went out, he'd mentioned another present that he'd bought for them. And Catherine found herself quite judgmental about so many expensive gifts for children. Last time, she'd come out with a somewhat snide remark. You sure do give your kids a lot. Afterwards, she said she kept rolling the problem over in her mind. And sometimes she just felt guilty about being so uncharitable. And sometimes her negative judgments about John's generosity towards his children ballooned and interfered with how she felt about the whole relationship. She went to a friend for advice. And her friend was very cautious about telling Catherine what to do. So she took a different tack. She said, just imagine for a moment that you're a third person looking down on you both, say from somewhere up near the ceiling. There's Catherine and John having a romantic dinner. John's enthusiastically telling Catherine about the latest toy he's bought for one of his sons. And there's Catherine getting hot under the collar, stewing on whether John has the wrong attitude to love and whether this whole relationship would never work out for her. And a friend went on. Oh, Catherine seems to be weighing up a number of options. Suggest he stops buying them such expensive gifts? Or just sit and say nothing? Or tell him not to talk to her about the gifts anymore? Or leave the relationship? From your bird's eye view, what would you recommend she do? Well, Catherine told us that she actually found her friend's summary of the problem was quite helpful. And she paused for a moment and took it all in. And then she looked back at her friend with a new idea. Well, why doesn't she find out why he does it, she said. So the next time John mentioned a gift he'd bought, Catherine held back on her acid remark and instead said, I've noticed you buy a lot of expensive gifts for your children. Can you tell me about why you do that? She was very careful to keep her tone just curious. She said he thought about it for a while and then he replied that he thought it helped him feel okay about himself as a father. His dad had been incredibly stingy with him, stingy with his time and stingy with his money, and he'd vowed that he'd be different with his own children. And he asked her, do you know what my test is for a good toy? I always choose toys I can use to relate to the children. He said he buys things that they can assemble together or that they have to go off to the park to use. He thought in part he was making up for all those lost opportunities with his own dad. Catherine had discovered his good intention and now her negative judgment just fell away. They talked on and it led Catherine into talking about her own childhood and her parents' attitude to gifts. Toys only came her way at birthdays and Christmas. Her parents didn't think toys were all that important. Catherine and John didn't try to change each other's opinions. They just spent time listening and trying to understand each other's values. Finally, she said, John smiled warmly, saying how good it was to be able to talk about himself so openly. And Catherine was delighted that she'd skirted their potential clash like that. All she'd really done was open up the conversation and find out more. And now Catherine felt closer to him.
Catherine made the space to find the good intention, and she did so with another empathy-building technique called dialoguing. A dialogue, or dialoguing, can soften our resistance to a set of values that's very different to our own. Perhaps we've come up against deeply divided core beliefs or world views or between a clash of culture or ethics. When your opposing opinions must somehow coexist and interact, a dialogue between you both might be the answer. It's a valuable technique that's often used to facilitate quite large groups too, and it can work just as well between two individuals, once you understand the principles behind it. Dialoguing builds empathy independently of the problems. It's about people telling their personal stories rather than debating the issues. When the issues rest on strongly held beliefs and values, challenging the other person head-on will just inflame the situation further, particularly when what you want are wildly different things. So this might be the time to encourage personal stories instead. So how does it work? In dialoguing, each person tells something of their life experiences that connect to their values and beliefs. Perhaps it's the influences on their lives. Perhaps something about past traumas or about difficulties that they're currently battling with. The purpose is for people in opposition to hear each other's experiences and the personal meaning that they've drawn from those. They're looking at what's behind the values that are clashing. If you're just one-on-one, you might start the ball rolling with a question such as, can you tell me something about how you've really come to value that? I'd love to understand it a bit better. We'll explore some more good openers shortly. People might talk about why the issue is important to them, how they got to this place, and possibly their pain around the issue. So tread lightly. There must be no debate. Just take on board whatever they say. The focus shifts from conflicting values to a fuller picture of the people themselves. Once we hear these backstories, we begin to view the conflict in a different way. And we begin to see that what the other person is saying is true for them. It's their reality. Here's an example. It's a blogger. This woman was repeatedly being hassled online. In internet slang, this guy was a troll. He was posting inflammatory remarks on her blogs. She decided to engage with him. But how could she do that when her fans would be reading these exchanges too? She started typing. Gosh, you feel strongly about that. Can you tell me something about how you came to that? And she shared a few things that had influenced her opinions that he was rubbishing. She didn't expect him to justify himself. And she didn't want to go too deep herself. But she chose a real online relationship with him. The outcome? He actually stopped trolling. And she felt better about her other trolls too. She felt much less threatened and hurt by their comments. You'll often come up against a value that's very alien to you. Others can hold very different worldviews and they may build their sense of identity completely differently to how you do it. When it's appropriate, encourage someone to tell you their story of how they formed those views. People are often quite willing to talk this way. 
You'll see the person as well as the problem a little differently and the conflicts that you've been having will become a little less biting. It can seem like nothing's really happened. People have just talked, there's no resolution. And yet, something has changed. A more empathic climate unfolds and it's quite possible that your opposing positions become a bit less polarised. If you're really able to create a totally non-judgmental space, people might also begin to discuss their unanswered questions and their difficulties and their doubts. And there might be room for some movement on the issues that must be resolved between you. Long term, more solutions might open up. But that's not the purpose of your dialoguing. Leave that for later. Just let the dialoguing itself do the work. As we saw with Catherine and John, Often the problem just dissolves rather than resolves. Dialoguing can be used to steer quite large groups with clashing religious and ethnic values and factions that hold deeply opposing opinions, say on the matter of abortion or logging. It's also been used in victim-offender reconciliations. There's a wonderful organisation called Essential Partners. It was formerly known as the Public Conversations Project. It specialises in this type of group facilitation. It's very important that the dialogue informs and doesn't inflame the situation further. Large group dialogues definitely need a skilled facilitator. They can steer the process safely, likewise where there's been violence in the past. The professional facilitator might decide on designated speakers from each group, sharing typical experiences with everyone. They'll roughly try and balance the numbers on each side of the divide. With a smaller group, say five to eight people, the facilitator might let the dialogue evolve naturally without a set format, but they'll be using careful questions to steer the process. Whether you're one-on-one or you're dealing with a bigger group, you might decide on dialogue rather than deepen the gulf by risking further debate. You'll totally shift your approach to encourage personal sharing. And here's some ways you might lead your conversation that way. Good questions might include, Oh, I'd love to understand it all better. Can you tell me something about how you've come to think or feel that way? Or, has there been some important experiences in your life that have led you to this? Or, can you talk about something that has really affected you personally that relates to all this. Perhaps you're dialoguing about a difficult piece of behaviour. Perhaps it's stealing or gambling or an addiction to gaming. Let's just call it X here. So you might ask, when you do X, how do you feel in the moment? Or when you've done X, what's it like for you? Just ask and then really listen and acknowledge the answers. And you might encourage them to go further but make sure you're genuinely curious, no judgments behind your questions. So you might ask, what doubts have you had? Keep the space safe, absolutely no direct challenges. Dialoguing is not about fixing. Perhaps you might find space for a miracle question. What's a miracle question? Well, perhaps if you woke up one morning and the whole problem was solved, what differences might you notice? If you're dialoguing one-on-one, ideally this whole thing's a two-way process. 
you'll need to be willing to share your personal experiences too and talk about some times when you were perhaps pulled in two directions on the issue in question. Find appropriate moments to do that. Even with the best of intentions, we'll never fully understand the other person. However, if we can manage to put judgments off to one side and try for respectful conversations, empathy will build. And dialoguing builds more trust for better decision-making when the time is right. Here's the summary. Conflicts are best handled in a climate of mutual respect. It helps when we really know where the other person is coming from and understand different personality styles and values. Diversity is a rich resource. We've looked at a number of ways we can work with it. The DISC model, which explains differing styles on scales of introverted versus extroverted, combined with oriented towards people or oriented to task. In difficult conversations, can we accommodate the other person's style? We've looked at value markers, ways to flag that someone's value is being respected. Can we find some agreed signals, such as regular phone calls or team meetings or agreed time out? How much of what is enough? We've spotted a clash of values. Common clashes include equality versus status. Agreement versus competition. Feeling versus action and objects focus. Interdependence versus autonomy. We've looked at how it helps to find the other person's good intention underneath their unwelcome behaviour. And we've considered switching to dialoguing rather than further debate when the issues and conflicting values are running deep. You don't try to fix the problem, you just encourage the other person to talk about the personal experiences that have shaped those beliefs and attitudes, and share some of your own. All these methods shift judgment out of the way and help us respect the other person's personal context. Our words, our actions, and our decision-making can then demonstrate this new respect. We're finding ways for our empathy to flow beyond and around differences. Make space for difference. If you'd like more details on all this, have a look at our website at Conflict Resolution Network. Our headquarters are at crnhq.org. You can download a transcript and explore extra study notes. And there's a free manual for trainers there too. Empathy has been about respecting the other person and the place they come from. It's time we looked at how we respect ourselves at the same time by clearly stating our case. So, in the next episode, we'll look closely at appropriate assertiveness. It's the fourth tool in your toolkit of conflict resolution skills.